I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Kristen O'Donnell Tubb is the author of Luna Howls at the Moon, Zeus, Dog of Chaos, the Story Collector series, A Dog Like Daisy, John Lincoln Clem, Civil War Drummer Boy, written as E.F. Abbott, The Thirteenth Sign, Selling Hope, and Autumn Winifred Oliver Does Things Different. In 2022, watch for The Decomposition of Jack, about the son of a roadkill researcher. Kristen lives near Nashville, Tennessee, with her bouncy, loud family. Just like her three dogs, she can be bribed with cheese. Here's my conversation with Kristen. Hi, Kristen. How are you, Julie? I am well. It's so nice to meet you on Zoom. Yes, and I'm yes. using my air quotes for that, of course. <laughs> meet you. Yes, yes. I am so happy to talk to you today, especially because I finished The Story Collector. Yay. And I was so charmed by the book. It's the original reason I reached out to you yes. was because I've been collecting stories about libraries. But this, would you call it middle grade fiction? Definitely. It is solidly middle grade. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think my favorite thing, part of what I wanted to talk about today is, well, the book, of course, but I wanted to start by telling everyone, middle grade fiction is not just for kids. Amen. I <laughs> here, here. Hallelujah. It. All yes. of you. <laughs> <laughs> Hands up. I loved it. It was so well um, written. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was sharp. It was funny. It was clever. I laughed out loud. And oh, I, yeah. anytime I laugh at a book, I, I can, you have me. I, oh, I'm wonderful. one over. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love middle grade as well. I just want to take a second and yes, reiterate. I, agree. I do think that middle grade is some of the best literature out there. It's phenomenal. Yes. What do you think it is that makes it so? I think it appeals to a sense of wonder that adults seem to lose in the day-to-day, you know, bill paying and looking at a calendar and answering email. There's not a whole lot of wonder in all of that. Um, (laughs) No, there's really not. From a person who paid her property taxes yesterday, no, I felt zero wonder. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I think middle grade just is that, you know, I've heard the definition of middle grade is figuring out the world. And I think that there's a magical element to that as well. And I just, yeah, I think that element of wonder that they capture, plus it's very, you know, plot heavy and very character intense and all of that stuff. It's just really well-written books. Yes. I love that you're characterizing it that way because it's very true. It has that distillation, right? Yes. And 
the essential elements are there and you can enjoy it. And I think it's great for anybody who might be in a slump yeah. and needs something quick to read that they really can enjoy. And you're yeah. right. And usually yeah. pretty quickly, you know, I mean, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I love that idea too, that you're going back to, because we all remember that sense of wonder, but you're right. It gets buried under all of our adulting. So yes, yes. that's yeah. fantastic. Now you've written multiple middle grade novels. This is my personal favorite, obviously, for awesome. for clear reasons because of the <laughs> library connection. <laughs> but what are some of your other ones that you've really enjoyed writing and sharing? I have a series of service dog books with Catherine Teagan books. The first one is called A Dog Like Daisy, where a rescued pit bull assists a veteran who has PTSD. Hmm. I know. The second one is Zeus, Dog of Chaos. And Zeus is a German shepherd who is a diabetic alert dog and Zeus assists a middle schooler named Madden. And he realizes when he gets the assignment that middle school must be the most dangerous assignment of them all <laughs> as everyone gasps as he gets the assignment. And then I have Luna howls at the moon, which is my most recent release. It just came out last June and Luna is an emotional therapy animal who helps Three of her, as she calls them, clients, because she works with a counselor, and she helps three of her clients on a quest across Austin, Texas. So I really, and all of them are written from the dog's point of view, which is so much fun and so playful and a great way to get to play with words that you don't always get to do when you're writing from a human's point of view. So um, yeah, I really had a lot of fun with those. I never even thought of that. That makes so much sense. I am already ordering those. Those are on my list to oh, order for my library because I got the story collector and the story seeker. And of course I thought, well, I'm going to need her entire collection. Yes. Yes. And the story seeker, thank you for bringing that one up. That's the sequel to story collector. Yes. And that is Viviani and the gang return to solve a couple, another mystery. And I just, I was so fortunate to be able to share one of the Fiedler stories, but they had so this, and they're most of what's in these books is true or based on truth. Yes. Okay. Continue. I want to hear yeah, what you yeah, were yeah. going to say. So, so there was so much material there that my editor and I decided this should really be two books. So thankfully they got to continue into a second story. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I, like I said, I was so charmed and I loved it was just a great read. Plus, oh, I had read, I recently read Lions of Fifth Avenue by yes, Fiona Davis. Yes. And when I was reading through, oh, I loved it. Yeah. And it was so much fun to read your book. And what was funny is I was reading through her acknowledgments and saw you in there. And mm -hmm. I got to speak to her recently as well. So tell me, just ro rolling all the way back, how did you decide to write about the New York Public Library? Well, this was one of those fortunate author moments where it literally fell into my lap. Well, literally, it figuratively fell into my lap. <laughs> I like that you made that specific. We librarians and authors take that word literally, very literally. <laughs> so I had written a book for a division of Macmillan a few years ago, Selling Hope. And since Selling Hope was historical fiction, they have invited me to do a couple of other historical fiction titles that they developed in-house. Oh, wonderful. And... Luckily, Story Collector was one of them. So they came to me. One of the editors had found this information about the, the Fiedler family 
and said, you know, would you be interested in writing a story about a girl who was born and raised in the New York Public Library in 1928, New York City? And I was like, oh my gosh, now that I know this story exists, you kind of can't keep me away from it. I was going to say, how long did that take you to say yes? Yeah, I couldn't type yes fast enough. <laughs> yes. And so I, did, I had to audition for it though, just like an actor auditions for a part. I read all the research that she had collected to date. And then I did a little bit more of my own just for this audition part. Sure. And so I wrote, I think it was five sample chapters and sent it to them. And luckily they really enjoyed them. And I got to continue for another whole book in another book. <laughs> that is a process. I didn't even know that that existed an in-house development. Yeah, it's not as common as, as say, writing a novel and then submitting it, you know, querying, getting an agent, that kind of thing. I do ha- sure. I do work with a wonderful agent. But yeah, this one kind of came in the reverse direction because they knew it was something they wanted to do. And they had, by this point, already partnered with the New York Public Library. So this is Henry Holt Books, which is a division of Macmillan. And they approached the library and said, we have these amazing stories. Would you be interested in doing a whole kind of line of books? So it's also partnered with a picture book that is by Josh Funk. And yes. oh my God, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's amazing. Does it have lions in the title? I feel like yes, it does. Yeah. Yes. And it's the adventures of the lions in front of the library, waking up and exploring the library at night. It's beautiful. The illustrator is Stevie. And now I'm blanking on her last name. I will put it all in the show notes and make sure wonderful, that it is linked wonderful. for everyone because that yeah, is on my list of books as it's well. It's great. And they get paired together a lot in schools, which I think is fantastic. So, you know, looking at how the the story and the pictures of Josh's book at, with the story collector, I, I'm very happy that they get shared together quite a bit. And that's such a gift too. You know, I work in a children's library, so it's it's wonderful to have levels for children to graduate to so yeah. that they have some schema around something and then they can dip into a more complex story and enjoy it, but also feel the familiarity of it. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful way to think of it. Yeah. Yeah. They can kind of grow along with it, along yes. with the viewers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I know you took a tour. You had a, a tour of the library before you started writing. Is that right? I did. So that was one. Of, this is maybe one of the best job perks <laughs> that I've ever I, experienced. I can't imagine. But I have on two separate occasions taken taken an individual private tour of the library. And now let me clarify, anyone can take a tour of the library and I highly, highly recommend it on nypl.org. Org, I think they're done. Sounds right. Yep. You can register for a free tour if you know the dates you're going to be visiting. And I highly recommend it. It's amazing because the history in that building alone is just phenomenal. It was built in 1911. So the history of this building is just phenomenal. It's so stunning. It's like a museum of books. It's, yes. it's beautiful. So I did get a private tour. I got to, you know, go to all the main public places like the map room and the Rosemain reading room, the periodicals room. They're all stunning. But I also got to go to places like the boardroom, which is where the library board yes. meets. So it's not up open to the public. And it's that room is right across the hall from where the Fiedler family's apartment was. Okay. So it's probably a room they would have seen or used quite a bit. And it was not a board meeting room 
when the Fiedlers lived there. Okay. Uh, it was actually a telephone operator room. Uh, oh my goodness. I know. It's amazing. The, the photos of the library and how the rooms have changed and evolved through the years is amazing. But in this boardroom, they have these tapestries that are hanging on the wall, 16th century tapestries. And, you know, you just think of the history and there's, I, I may be wrong on this, but I think there are five of them hanging on the wall and they represent the five known continents of the world when the tapestries were made. I know. Isn't that amazing? That is a wild thought. I know. It's so, it's fascinating to me. Wow. So there's, there's stuff like that all over this library and just, it's amazing. There are private meeting rooms, which I didn't even know that are really very accessible. And during, I think it was world war one, really high up military officers would meet in these meeting rooms because it was a very centrally located. This library is in the middle of middle of New York, right? Middle of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And they had the most up-to-date maps of any place in the world. So they would meet and study these maps together and, and plot out their, their strategy for World War One. Isn't that amazing? That is, that's incredible. I'm just thinking about that, right? It's mind-blowing to think. Yeah. Oh, and they, they studied codes. They cracked codes inside this library. Oh. Um, and not to mention just all the, the authors that have worked there too and have created just amazing works of art while they're there. But yes, one of the best things that I got to see was the Fiedler's apartment. It's on the second, it's kind of on the, it's on the mezzanine. Level and it's eight rooms, which is a quite a big apartment in um, Manhattan. And (laughs) yes, especially in Manhattan, (laughs) right? (laughs) Was that rent controlled? Because I'm sure they wanted that. (laughs) Yes, they had a very good gig, except you know you had to keep the furnace burning at two a.m. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they lived there because they were the building caretakers. Yes. So John Fiddler, and I'll go back and forth and say Fiddler and Fiddler because it's pronounced both ways. So perfect. I prefer it. Depending on, you know, how you learned it. Absolutely. So John and his wife moved their three children into this, well, two at the time, and then Viviani was born there, into this apartment, and it overlooked, at the time, Bryant Park. So they had this beautiful apartment overlooking this beautiful park. Now that part of the library has actually been kind of blocked in, and it's now a computer and technology room. So the windows of the apartment actually look into the... (laughs) Computer and Technology Center now. Um, I know, right? <laughs> well, that's just a lovely, uh, yeah. lovely little nod to advancement. I know. It's Who amazing. wants to look at Bryant Park? I know, right? <laughs> right. And the apartment is now used as a as offices. So, okay. but it still has the exact same footprint. So you can see exactly like where the kitchen was. There's still a dumbwaiter in the kitchen. Oh my goodness. See where everyone's bedrooms were. It's just, it's fascinating. It's, it's so cool. Have you always loved historical fiction? Yes. Oh my gosh. I think it's probably my favorite genre to read. And, uh, you know, children's books is so, they have so many talented authors working in historical fiction. Linda Sue Park and Ruta Sepetis and Alan Gratz. Yes. Yeah. That's just off the top of my head. These are amazing authors. And these stories that they're uncovering, like Ruta even says, like history has secrets and, and an author's job is to kind of, you know, dust off the dust, blow off the dust and, and share those secrets with the world. 
Yes. We don't have any of Rudas in our library because of because it's a little advanced. Yeah, it's great. Right, right. But Salt to the Sea, I loved. That one still lives on my shelf because I was it's just amazing. so touched by it. It's, yeah. And you're exactly right. It is really wonderful to see, especially in our age too, how some of historical fiction is reclaiming the lesser told narratives. Yes. So yes. you're seeing I- some of that. Yes, and I'm really glad that publishing is moving toward more of a well-rounded historical perspective as well. And that makes me very happy that the the folks who are writing these narratives are from around the world. And that's wonderful. I mean, the the stories that these readers get to uncover, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it really does give you that sense of closeness, but actual connection as opposed to sort of the false sense of it, right? You feel like you can step into that story a little bit more, which is a gift. Yeah, it is. You're right. A gift. Perfect way to say that. I have a question for you about the embellishing of the wallpaper. Was that an actual detail or something you made up in the story collector when you were talking about her drawing? Yes, that was made up. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Oh, yay! I loved it because I could just picture her. Yes. That was such a perfect detail. I loved it. Fun character to write. And, uh, you know, I really didn't have to stretch from what I read about her. I really didn't have to stretch too far to make her exciting and wonderful to read about. She had a very vivacious personality. She was a true redhead. You know, I mean, tends tends to write redheads as these wonderful, fiery characters anyway. And that really was who she was. The wallpaper actually came from when I was researching Story Collector, I looked at all of the apartments that were in libraries throughout New York City. So this particular story, of course, takes place in the flagship building, which is on 5th and 42nd, the main New York Public Library. Yes. But libraries throughout the city had apartments in them and had people living in them. And in one of the pictures, they had wallpaper that looked like it had been there since like the 40s, 50s, I don't know. But it was old. I mean, it was probably 60s. I'm trying to think of when wallpaper became the thing, 60s, 70s. And it was peeling and stuff, but it was just this beautiful picture of decay, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yes, it does. Because wallpaper does have that very specific, it's so visual, and yeah. you can kind of see the bright areas. And yeah. the, yes, you're right. Yeah. Completely continue. Yeah. So just, yeah. I mean, I just was inspired by that. So I thought, oh, well, maybe she had wallpaper in her room. That would be kind of a neat detail. Yeah. So yes, that was totally based on research, which most of my plot points are because I consider plotting my Achilles heel. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't think I'm super strong at it, but I'm a pretty good researcher. And so if I can find enough information, I can string together a plot. (laughs) That is a good lesson for those of us that are writing, or I think a lot of my fifth grade friends will be listening to this. And I'm always telling them that (laughs) they're Fairlands. That's, (laughs) that's our school name. So, but they, when we talk about writing and things that we're not necessarily good at yet, I yeah. love the idea that you're presenting that if you know your weak areas, then you can use your strong areas to assist you. Yes, absolutely. So that's a really good lesson because it is easy just to say, 
oh, I'm that's not my strong suit, but yeah, developing yeah, it yeah. is I mean, a good thing. Yeah, exactly. I think you've phrased that in a way that I've never really thought about it before, but that's it exactly. I, yeah, I feel like research is definitely one of my stronger points. And it allows me to watch a ton of YouTube videos <laughs> as Just, research. I pulled up the one of the under Bryant Park delivery system Isn't that it you had referenced in the yeah. or in the author's note here. I could watch that for hours. I'm I will link that for sure because that is it is really fascinating too. And like you said, that train, yeah, yes. Well, and I love little things too. So like a tiny train that really just yes, that checks all the boxes. Yes, yes, (laughs) I love it. I love it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You did a really good job, too, of choosing specific vocabulary that felt so true to the time. Oh, like I noticed you had nifty and daring do, and she was a peach of a kid. Oh. And I loved those touches. I was, I really was so impressed by it overall on all levels. I loved it. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, what's funny, the vocabulary for me is one of the things that again, I, I think it goes back to research, but I will say I started off writing children's books because I started writing licensed character books. So I have written Scooby-Doo, Bugs Bunny, okay. Powerpuff Girls. And again, with those, you have to audition. You have to you know, write a sample. And if you kind of match the voice of Scooby-Doo, right. you, can, you can get hired for that. So how I started writing those books or how I approached writing those books was I would make a list of everything Scooby-Doo does and says, like those meddling kids and, you know, Scooby Snacks and Rut Row and yes. another clue and yanking off the mask. Like everything that Scooby-Doo is known for and then trying to weave those in to the narrative. And so I, I did a lot of that. And so I still do that when I, especially writing historical fiction, I Google, you know, what are words that are from, you know, 1919 to 1925 is kind of, because I consider that safe. Usually anything pushing right up against your, your, you know, 1928 can be a little hard to verify. Right. That makes sense. And just make a list and try to get them in there. What an excellent idea, because I never thought about characterization, which happens to be, I think, one of my weaker points, but that characters are very much identified and understood by what they say. Yeah. So that's that's a really easy way to give them 
a more specific and targeted voice that really fits them. Right. And so for, for a contemporary character, the way that that kind of works, at least for me, sure, I literally, anytime I hear a conversation or somebody use a word that I feel like my character would use, it goes into my phone, my little database that I have on my phone, my, my notes app. And so I keep a running vocabulary list of, of things that sound like my story or my character. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty useful. That is genius. And this totally leads exactly where we're going to go because I was just thinking, I am getting so many tips. I'm going to get off this call and write all this down. <laughs> but I shouldn't be surprised because one of your pieces of your website is your six-second writing tips. Six-second writing tips. Yes, yes. How did you decide on six seconds? Well... <laughs> Because I'm dating myself here. They started off as vines. Do you remember the vine? Yes, app I from do a few remember years ago? I mean, it was probably 10 years ago, 2010. Sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That was not even 10 years ago. It was 12 years ago. <laughs> potato, potato. Right, right. Right. <laughs> so, and vines were six seconds. And That's so my right. goal was to try to fit in as many writing tips as I could in six seconds. And, you know, I mean, I know educators have very limited time for each yes. block that yes. they have to offer. And so I thought if I can just do six seconds of show, don't tell, and six seconds of the three story, three elements every story has to have, then it makes it that much easier to springboard into what, you know, the educator, teacher, librarian wants to share. So yeah, that's why six seconds. It, some of them are very rushed, as you can I'm like, it's a good thing you can talk fast. It's fine. You can watch them over and over again. No problem, everyone. No, I really like that though. And I appreciate, like you said, it's thoughtful of time, but they're very actionable tips that you have. And I think they're perfectly suited for any younger and older writers because we tend to overcomplicate things. And so Uh I really enjoyed going back and listening to them because it's it's inspiring, right? It feels like keep the main thing, the main thing. And that same sort of energy of, okay, let me just pull this back because we get cluttered. Yes. Oh, that's the perfect way to say that. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's I, so a lot of one of the things that I do when I, especially when I'm revising, but sometimes when I'm drafting too, is I take I call it my super secret story formula. And I share it anytime I do a school visit or anytime I do like a writing workshop. And it's basically three blanks. And of course, these are the three things that every story has to have. A main character, a goal, and obstacles. So the formula is this. My main character, blank. Okay. Wants blank more than anything in the world, but can't have it because of blank. So if you know those three blanks, especially that second one, yes, <laughs> then you can, like you said, you can keep that tight focus and you can really narrow in and kind of, you know, peel away. So anything that doesn't have to do with those three blanks gets cut. So any, even any setting details, any secondary characters that aren't supporting that yes. kind of goal. Any, gosh, you know, all the narrative should point in that direction. All the dialogue should hint toward it. So it it doesn't always happen. You know, you have to have some transitional things. Sure. But it's very helpful. Like I said, especially during revision. 
That is an excellent tip. And I specialize in what my husband calls tree branching, which is <laughs> when I'm talking and then I just sort of go off a different direction and then I come back to the trunk. And it's, yeah. I mean, of course, it's just like his favorite thing about me. And I'm not being at all sarcastic about that, of course. <laughs> it's like, land the plane, Julie. Come on, yeah. keep it together. Let's, let's do this. But I, I, but I think it is, you know, for creative people or people who are trying to create things, that's a natural danger where yes. you get this energy and it starts to spin out. So having something so targeted and centered like that is a great tip, especially yeah. for revision, because right. you can let yourself go wild a little bit in the draft and exactly. then you can then focus Narrow in. it in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you oh. said, in the play. Yes. Um, and I do think that's particularly true for historical fiction, especially if you have done just the, you know, tremendous amount of research, the amount of research that has been, that is done. And then what actually ends up in the story is, you know, if we're talking a hundred pages of research, I would guess 20 of those pages are the, is what ends up in the story. So it, it really does help you figure out what details need to be in historical fiction as well. Yes, that's so key. It makes me a little sweaty though, thinking about discarding 80 pages of <laughs> time and research. Which is why two books, you go for two books. <laughs> that's the solution. Perfect. We've yes, figured it out. Yes. If you okay, have an well, awesome agent, like my wonderful agent, Josh Adams. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sounds like it. That's so fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So we'll kind of wind down because I want to hear what you're talking about or what you're working on now. Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you for asking that. I have a book coming out in October, October 11th to be exact of 2022. And that is called The Decomposition of Jack. And I'm very excited about it. I have pitched this book or I have described this book over and over again as Ted Lasso meets Wednesday Adams. <laughs> I don't think I could love anything more. I love those two. And this character, I love this character so much. His name is Jack Acosta. He is 12 years old in middle school. And his mother is a roadkill researcher. Oh, which wow. Which is a real job. <laughs> roadkill researcher. A roadkill researcher. Wow. So in this story, this fictionalized version of her job is that she works independently, but is, has, gets a grant from the University of Tennessee. Okay. Set in my home state. Perfect. So yes, yes. And she researches roadkill. And this is, like I said, it's a real job. And it's amazing when you think about all the things, when you really start digging into, no pun intended, roadkill. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, I like uh, it. <laughs> I know, right? There's a lot of that kind of humor in this book. I'm not. Yeah. It's going <laughs> to be perfect. Of, like dark. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love dark humor. Yeah, right? I do mm -hmm. too. So that people study roadkill because they want to improve roads. They want to reduce human animal accidents for oh. both sides. They want to keep humans safer. They want to keep the wildlife safer. Right. So they research it in order to build safer roads. They research it in order to build, for instance, in LA, they are building now the world's largest wildlife crossing. 
over. I think I read the about that. Yes, that is, yes. They studied the wildlife. There was a cougar that was trapped, and they studied patterns of roadkill, and they realized the best place to build this and how wide it should be. So it's fascinating when you think about it. You can also study animal DNA in a way that you really, you know, it's totally accessible to you in a way that animal, you know, wildlife DNA is not. Right. They have studied animal diseases because of this. They have studied things like, this one was one of my favorites. So in Florida, a hurricane hit a facility that was housing pythons. Naturally. Okay. (laughs) And all of the pythons escaped in this natural disaster. Oh my. And made their way to the Everglades. And since the pythons have been and they're thriving. And this is really terrible. Like they're of course yeah. not native to the Everglades. And these they have noticed a 99% reduction in roadkill. <laughs> oh. Since these pythons, particularly raccoons. So the so, pythons are just taking care of all of that. They're for just them. taking care of all of it. And so it's 99%. just 99%. Right. So they were like, we were trying to figure out like how are they eating? How are they thriving? And then yeah. they were like, second we haven't seen roadkill in a little bit so who was the person who came up with that right in the meeting they're like hold on a second professor i know what's happening here yeah that's what a great story yeah in, in the decomposition of jack people think his family is struggling and they think they're you know scraping up this roadkill in order to use it for food and mm. so he's he's trying to kind of overcompensate for what his image is so yeah Okay. I can't wait to read it. That sounds like it's really going to be a good one. And I think middle school can be a brutal place, even if you're not involved in scraping roadkill. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, so, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I can't wait. So that's October 11th. I will yes. be on the lookout for that. And I'll put links to everything in our show notes so that you have all, so that everyone can go and find these books. And we will end on the reminder that middle grade is not just for kids. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I could sing the praises of middle grade fiction all and nonfiction all day long. Totally wonderful stories. Highly, highly recommend. It's so true. Well, thank you so much for today. This was a pleasure. I so enjoyed chatting with you. I think I could talk to you for hours. I do too, Julia. Whenever you just want to hang out and do some Zooming. <laughs> I would love Done. to hear more about your library and, you know, your role there. It sounds like you really love your job. I do. I'm really lucky to yeah. enjoy it and be with just really special kids. They're the ones who put the life in the library. So it's, it's pretty yeah. great. Yeah. They put the life in middle grade too, for sure. So, yeah. Yes. And there's nothing I love more. I cannot wait to shove this into the hands of as many kids as I can. And that is typically how I roll. They'll say, Mrs. Chavez, can you give me a recommendation? And I just hand them the book. It's it's uh, not a choice. I just say, go read this. That's a great relationship too, because they trust you. They are yes. trusting their heart with you and, and they're, they're, you're sharing the stories of the world with them. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you for creating them. You are definitely a story collector and you're doing a wonderful job. So thank you. Thanks so much for today and we'll speak soon. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewriteswords.com. There you'll find the show notes, 
including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.